Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. My mental health really began to suffer during COVID. At first, life seemed normal. I work from home anyway. But as the months passed, with no vacation, no friends to see, no change in routine, it was a bit like the walls were closing in. And one of the things that got me through that period was therapy. Talking to someone who could help change the patterns that led to distress was incredibly helpful. If there's something you need to get off your chest, then why not give BetterHelp a try? You can just fill out a brief questionnaire online and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. You can arrange things to suit your schedule, and if you don't click with the person you're talking to, it's easy to switch to someone else. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Byzantium today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Byzantium. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 30, Age Before Beauty. Last time, we concluded the nightmare decade of the 540s, with the worst ravages of the plague dying away, and Khusro happy to keep a truce in the east, Justinian was able to gather an army in Illyricum, which he hoped would finally end the now 16-year-old war in Italy. Instead, though, the army's commander Germanus died, and a large Slavic invasion spread out across the Balkans. Despite these final setbacks, the 550s were set to be happier days for the emperor. Thanks to, or in spite of, his ministrations, the men and money had been found to push forward with his dreams of reconquest. The men who would lead the empire's armies, though, were a curious selection. The man put in charge of ejecting the Slavs from the Balkans was Scholasticus, a palace eunuch with apparently no military experience. The new commander of the army in Italy was another eunuch, our old friend Narses, the man who handed out bribes during Nica and then foolishly squabbled with Belisarius during the first Italian campaign. Narses had at least that brief experience of military life to fall back on, but he was now in his 70s and seemed as unlikely a conqueror as one could imagine. Finally, the man sent to take over affairs in Lazica was Bessus, last seen not offering Belisarius much help during one of the sieges of Rome. Bessus, too, was now at least 70, though he was an experienced general, if not with the best reputation. During the fundraising episode, we saw how Justinian had begun to split his commands after hearing that Belisarius had been offered the title of Western Emperor by the Goths. This approach was doomed to failure, and the emperor was quick to recognize that one overall commander was a necessity for successful operations. But Justinian remained forever on guard against usurpation. 
Shortly after Theodora's death, a conspiracy against his life had come to light, surrounding a couple of Armenian generals. While not a serious incident, it was clearly enough to push the emperor into only trusting old men, or eunuchs, those he could feel safe in promoting. We should remember too that Justinian was now in his late 60s, and showed no desire to slacken his workload so he probably felt that men in their seventh decade were perfectly capable of leading armies. Historian Tom Holland also points out that with the plague recurring in far-off places every year, perhaps the emperor was choosing men who had survived their meeting with Yersinia and would not unexpectedly die out in the field. Whatever the determining factor was, the emperor's judgment of talent and loyalty had not failed him. Bessus brought the siege of Petra to a successful conclusion in spring 551 and demolished the fortifications which might tempt the Persians to retake the coastal city. And although Khusro refused to give up his forts in the east of the country, he did agree to an extension of the truce between the two empires. This would be another five-year deal with a couple of thousand pounds of Byzantine gold as the price. In the west, Scholasticus took command of the army of Thrace, and after an initial setback, was able to defeat the Slavic raiders and drive them back across the Danube. However, the gathering of imperial forces in the Balkans began to worry the Gepids, who had enjoyed free reign on the northwest Danube for some time. Apparently, it was they who incited a horde of Kutragar Bulgars to raid the empire and distract the army that Narses was putting together. Justinian acted quickly to free his general from the burden of dealing with these latest raiders. He sent messages to the neighbours of the Kutrigas, the Utigas, also Bulgars, inviting them to attack their cousin's homeland, which they did, and the Kutrigas withdrew. Justinian was also quick to send word to the Lombards that he would happily switch his subsidies to them if they would attack the Gepids. This they did, and finally the path was clear for Narses to invade Italy. The eunuch emerges from the histories as a man Justinian must have trusted more than any other. Remember that during Nica, it was Narses who was handed a bag of gold and sent out of the besieged palace to sow discord amongst the blues and greens. Now General Narses was given around 20,000 men and the back pay for the garrisons in Italy. Oh, what Belisarius would have given to lead such an army. There were significant numbers of mercenary troops included as usual, with heralds, Huns, Persian deserters, and nearly 6,000 Lombards. In Italy... Totilla was aware that a storm was gathering, and was working hard to improve his position so that he could bargain from a position of strength with the empire. He had wisely invested in his fleet, knowing that ideally the Byzantines would send reinforcements by sea. During 551, he used it to cut off the Byzantine garrison in Ancona on the east coast, so while Narses was still gathering recruits, it was left to John, the nephew of Vitalian, to lead a relief force across the Adriatic. When they met, the two fleets were of equal size, but the Imperial Navy was far more experienced, leading the Goths into a disastrous battle that saw practically their whole fleet sunk. 
Meanwhile, down in Sicily, Liberius was replaced by a more experienced commander who kicked the remaining Goths off the island. The stage was set for the final invasion. By spring 552, Narsi's army was ready to march and crossed through Dalmatia into Italy. The overland route was a necessity, for despite the recent naval success, the plague had taken a heavy toll on the Imperial Navy, and there just weren't enough experienced sailors to man a fleet that large. The march was more perilous than it might have been, because the crossing into Italy led them close to the conflict between the Lombards and the Gepids to the north, and then once in Italy, the Franks to the west. When Totila had set up multiple sieges of Rome and crossed to Sicily, he needed the bulk of his troops in the south of the country, so he allowed the Franks to occupy most of the country north of the Po. You'll recall that the Franks had already invaded once during the first Italian campaign. So Narses hugged the coast as much as possible until he reached Ravenna. Once there, he was able to gather reinforcements from the Byzantine garrison and marched south with closer to 30,000 troops. Totila amassed all the forces he could, but was outnumbered, probably with only 15,000 men to his side. Ignoring other Gothic garrisons, Narses made his way to the Via Flaminia, and the two sides met at Buster Galorum. Narses took up a strong defensive position, with his infantry massed in the centre, and dared Totila to attack. He actually ordered many of his cavalry to dismount and stand with their lances ready, like a makeshift phalanx. On each wing he placed his archers, rather than just cavalry. Totila decided to make use of his countrymen's greatest asset, and ordered his cavalry to make a ferocious charge to try and break the imperial army in one burst. The disciplined imperial infantry held their line though, and the archers poured volley after volley into the charging horsemen. When the Goths finally broke and fled, they were mercilessly cut down, apparently losing 6,000 men, while others were taken prisoner. Using quite different tactics than Belisarius would have done, Narses had crushed the core of Gothic resistance. Procopius was no longer on hand to describe the gory details, and so we get conflicting reports as to what became of Totila. However, it's generally agreed that he was injured either during the battle or in the rout that followed, and died with a few retainers by his side in a nearby village. He was hastily buried, but someone tipped off the Byzantines as to the location of his grave so that they could determine that he was indeed gone. After the battle, Narses hastily paid off and dismissed his hired Lombards, who were looking a little too eager to pillage the Italian countryside. The general then moved on to crush what remained of the Goths. The garrison of Rome put up little resistance, while the hastily chosen new king, Teus, executed the Roman senators and other hostages under his care and raced to Cumae, where the Gothic treasury now resided. Narses followed the new king's movements and trapped his forces in the foothills of Mons Lactarius, not too far from the now long-forgotten town of Pompeii, before the Goths withdrew up the mountain for safety. However, after a day or so, the Goths realised that there was no food available, 
and so surprised the Byzantine army gathering to besiege them. The two sides fought a frenzied infantry battle, with no time or space to get into proper formation. This was just man hacking away at other men in a desperate attempt to survive. The battle went into a second day, before Teus was killed, and his men begged Narses, not just for peace, but to let them leave Italy. The Goths were finally done dealing with the empire. Narses let them go as his forces fanned out and retook the towns and forts of southern Italy. However, the country was not conquered yet. Waiting on the sidelines were the Franks, and when news reached them of Totila's death, they began preparations to move south of the Po and plunder Italy. Actually, the king, Theodobald, decided to play things safely and maintain official neutrality, while looking the other way and letting his Alamanni subjects loose on the Italians. Some Goths rallied to their banners, but quickly realised that the host was not here to restore Gothic power, but to carry off Italian wealth. Narses perhaps wisely let a year pass before engaging the invading Franks. His army had been split up to garrison the towns of the country, and he didn't want to risk losing important detachments, trying to bring them all together again. The results for the Italians, though, were miserable, as the horde contained many pagans who had no scruples about ransacking churches. Eventually, though, the two Alamanni chieftains divided their army, one heading south along the east coast and the other the west. This was to be their end. One chieftain was ambushed by a Byzantine garrison, losing most of his booty, and when he retreated beyond the Po, an outbreak of plague saw him off, while the other made a foolish stand at Capua against Narses, who by now had brought the full imperial army down to bear on him and annihilated his half of the horde. Soon after, the Frankish king himself died of disease. The Franks still held bases north of the Po, and it wouldn't be until the summer of 555 that the final strongholds gave in. But for now, Justinian considered Italy, at last, brought back into the empire. He issued an edict cancelling Totila's actions and restoring property to their former owners. Narses would remain in the country from now on and take charge of its administration and the subjugation of the territory north of the Po. While the emperor could finally rest easy in the knowledge that the former home province of the Roman Empire was back in the fold, there was no joy in Italy. For the Italians, the last 20 years had been spent in constant and fairly pointless warfare. Milan had been destroyed, Naples sacked, Rome depopulated, with thousands of untold others dying of famine, plague, or because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. That old cliché about the Romans making a desert and calling it peace had now come back around to destroy their homeland. Three years after Justinian's death, Italy would be too weak to prevent yet another German invasion as the Lombards decided to make it their new home. And it was those soldiers who Narses hired for the campaign who were able to tell their brethren of the rich and pleasant peninsula to the south. It was in the summer of 552, while Narses led the march from Dalmatia to Italy, 
that a Visigothic embassy arrived at Constantinople from Spain. As we touched on briefly way back in episode 7, Visigothic control of the former Roman provinces of Hispania had never been strong. Even after their crushing defeat at the hands of the Franks, the Visigoths maintained their capital in Gaul rather than Spain, and the mountainous peninsula really required a firm hand if it was going to keep the various regions all pulling in the same direction. As you know, Theodoric essentially ruled from Italy until his death in 526. The young king Amalaric then took power, but suffered another defeat at the hands of the Franks, leading to his former guardian Theudis to rule until 548. A series of assassinations followed before King Agila took charge and faced multiple rebellions from those who had realised that power was being held by a shaky hand. The city of Cordova in the south had declared itself independent of Visigothic control and was now being ruled by essentially former Roman citizens. When the city was able to repulse Agila's attempt to retake it, another Visigothic noble named Athengild, based in nearby Seville, also rebelled. And it was Athengild's embassy which asked the emperor to intervene and help settle the matter. The fact that Athengild would ask Justinian for help tells us much about the confused political fallout from the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. I know we are 30 episodes removed from that event, but it's only been a century since the empire controlled the whole of Spain. Surely, any other emperor of the time would have refused to consider the matter. After the decade he'd just endured, the sensible option would surely have been polite refusal and to focus on completing the conquest of Italy, while keeping a watchful eye on Cusro in the east. This was, after all, just the kind of situation that had led to the sack of Antioch. But Justinian was a true believer. Whether it was Rome, the Christian God, or his own legacy, he was committed to achieving great things. If the conquests of Africa and Italy had gone smoothly, then it's entirely possible the emperor would have looked to retake Hispania anyway. So here was the chance to establish a beachhead for future endeavours. Spain was the final area of the Western Empire being ruled over by Aryan Christians. So the chance to bring orthodoxy to the whole Mediterranean and put his borders back on the Atlantic was too tempting to resist. The empire couldn't spare many men, but Justinian found about 2,000 and ordered them to set sail immediately. Now, the key question, of course, is who should lead these troops? Spain was far away, and a man of great skill and leadership was needed, but one who was unlikely to rebel or set himself up as king of Spain should things go too well. Finally, the punchline has arrived. Which brave conquistador did Justinian select? Why, Liberius, of course. The now probably 87-year-old career bureaucrat, whose only military experience was to hide behind the walls of Sicilian towns while the Goths raged outside. There was simply no chance that Liberius was going to threaten the emperor. And to be fair to Liberius, he did a fine job. It's doubtful he led any troops into battle, but he coordinated the operation 
which saw the Byzantine troops land and link up with both the Roman rebels of Cordova and Athengild's men and defeat King Agila in battle, securing the southern portion of Spain for the unlikely alliance. Liberius would return to his homeland, Italy, for a thoroughly well-deserved retirement. However, the troops would stay behind and help Athengild conquer the rest of Spain. With the Ostrogoths in Italy on the run, Justinian found some reinforcements to send by 554, and by the following year, the supporters of King Agila, sensing which way the wind was blowing, killed him and proclaimed Athengild king. Athengild tried to thank and dismiss the Byzantine troops, but they refused to leave. Joining with the Roman rebels of Cordova, they held on to about a fifth of the peninsula along the south and east coasts. The king left them be for now, and concentrated on securing the rest of his realm. The Spanish campaign puts Justinian's career in a nutshell, a foolish endeavour on the surface, swimming against the tide of history which might have diverted men and money from where they were most needed, and yet the campaign was a success and proved once more that the organised structures of the Roman Empire could still overcome disparate kingdoms. If you want a fleeting glimpse of the political unity which the Roman Empire brought to the Mediterranean world, then check out the map that accompanies this episode at thehistoryofbyzantium.com or on Facebook. It's the largest the Byzantine Empire would ever be, and it won't look like that for long. In Lazica, war rumbled on for a few more years after the capture of Petra. Khusro still hoped to somehow gain the upper hand, but became increasingly distracted by the chance to finally deal with the Hephthalites. By 557, Khusro agreed to extend his truce with Justinian without asking for any gold, and he included Lazica in the deal. Ambassadors were now regularly crossing the border to establish a permanent treaty of peace between the two great empires. This relative calm allowed Justinian to turn his mind back to the Monophysites. We dealt briefly last time with the Pope Vigilius's delaying tactics as he tried to not sign up to the Emperor's condemnation of the three chapters, or the three theologians who had taken part in the Council of Chalcedon. With the dispute going nowhere, Justinian called for an ecumenical council to meet in 553 in Constantinople. It had been over a century since the last one, Chalcedon of course, and the gathering of all the empire's bishops was Justinian's best chance of forcing a solution on them. And that's very much what he intended to do. An ecumenical council was meant to be a sacred gathering whose pronouncements would gain extra legitimacy not only by the presence of all those senior churchmen but because the Holy Spirit was meant to attend their pronouncements. However, it was clear to all the bishops gathering in the capital that the only invisible power guiding them on this occasion would be the emperors. Most of the Italian and African bishops did not attend and neither did the Pope. The remaining bishops from the East accepted the condemnation of the three theologians, 
It was a relatively small thing to accept, and the emperor was so vehement in his desires that it was always likely to be approved. Even Pope Vigilius was eventually pressured into accepting it after being briefly condemned by the council. The result of the Council of Constantinople was not what Justinian intended. As usual, the reworded statement of faith did nothing to change the Monophysite objection to the claim that Jesus had two natures. The Monophysites felt they believed something different to the Orthodox, and what they believed was true. Even as the council was meeting, Jacob Baradius and men like him were leading the people of the East through Monophysite services, which explicitly put them at odds with those in the West. And although this might seem like Groundhog Day to you, yet another imperial attempt at unity failing, it does have long-term significance. The history of the Christian Church up to this point had been one of constant debate and scholarship. Men from Alexandria, Antioch, and Constantinople responding and discussing different aspects of the religion they all stridently believed in. But the debate had ground to a halt around the Monophysite issue, and Justinian turned out to be the last man who could have done something about it. Those within the church had made their arguments and dug in their heels, and from now on, no serious theological attempt would be made to bring them together. Justinian was a clever man, and though his three chapters idea seemed like it had merit, it was actually the final failure in a long process. Future emperors would continue to look for political solutions, but from now, the two branches of Eastern Christianity were fairly fixed in official ideology. Justinian had ordered a solution from on high, and in a way he got what he asked for. Debate over orthodoxy was now done. The statement of faith laid out at his council would remain as it was, and the Monophysites would go their own way. This calcification of theology was not apparent at the time, of course. Justinian remained hopeful that somehow the Monophysites would come around. As he grew older, the emperor spent more and more of his time with a small group of theologians debating and studying doctrine. He never lost his passion for theological speculation and would continue to hope that somewhere in the Gospels and the commentaries on them, there was a way to bring all his people together. In two weeks' time, we finally say goodbye to Justinian. Although his wars had finally come to an end, his last few years are not without incident. It may also take me another episode just to sum up the legacy of the Emperor's amazing 38 years on the throne. The fundraising sale continues to go well. Please get in touch with me straight away at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com if you have any problems with it. And once more, I want to say thank you so much to all of you who've bought the episode, and particularly to those who donated more than they had to. I'm truly grateful to you. I should also say thank you so much to musicalley.com for the music which plays us in and out. You can find lots of great royalty-free music at their site. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.